Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide and the political director for Emerge America. Last episode, we heard from Aditi Hardiker, the former Obama White House liaison to the LGBTQ and AAPI communities. We talked about her journey from intern to White House staffer in embracing all of your identities. If you missed it, check it out. Today, we continue to celebrate Pride Month and our LGBTQ brown girls by speaking with the first openly Black LGBT woman elected in Colorado, State Representative Leslie Harrod. From sponsoring legislation around child savings accounts to her signature work on criminal justice reform, Rep. Harrod also uses her voice to encourage more LGBTQ individuals to enter politics and, of course, run for office. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Representative, we are so excited to have you with us today. How are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? Doing great. So we are so excited to talk to you today because there's just so much I want to ask you. But first, I really want to talk about how you got involved in politics because you did it during your college years. So what made you say, okay, now is the time for me to take my love of politics up a notch and to become a co-founder of New Era Colorado, which was really a groundbreaking organization for getting young people involved in politics. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because I got started um, basically the first day I walked on the campus at CU Boulder. Um, when I got there, I didn't realize that it was the least diverse public institution um, for higher education behind Brigham Young University. And so <laughs> that just oh, kind of wow. threw me <laughs> off. Yeah. And seeing very few uh, people of color, especially Black people, um, it was pretty disconnecting. I felt very disconnected from the campus. Um, but I found home at the Black Student Alliance, um, and we kind of all had lunch together with Black students, Umasi Mecha, Muslim students, all the different student groups started hanging out and, you know, kind of wanted to find community in each other. And so um, we realized very quickly that we could provide that space um, a welcoming and inclusive space, not only for us, but for everyone on campus. Uh, we decided to run for student government as a ticket uh, that year and ended up taking over every single seat in student government. Uh, we then used our new political power uh, to create change on campus. Um, I became the first, I became the president and uh, ran a $36 million budget before I was 20 years old. Uh, in the midst of all this, we realized that CU had the largest student government in the nation. So we learned a lot on our feet very quickly. Um, I then took that uh, experience and knowledge into the outside world, outside of the university, uh, realized that in Colorado, there wasn't uh, a clear voice for young people, um, created a organization called New Era Colorado with some of my colleagues from the student union. Um, and it's now become the leading voice for millennials throughout the state. Love it. And for our young women who are listening, I just feel your story is so important because there's a gap that happens between young women's political leadership once they get in high school to college. They may be really active in high school, but once they get to college, they don't really get involved in any leadership positions. So to hear that your first day on campus, you're all looking around saying, 
things have to change, but to recognize that I'm someone who can help make that change is just really powerful and impactful what you're able to do. Yeah, I think it's just important that people um, who don't see themselves in the positions don't use that as a reason to not get involved. Um, and so when I was you know, running for student government, I looked at the student government and there was no one who looked like us, any of us, and realized we had to change that. And so, you know, we tend to look at this person who holds the seat to determine if we could actually win those seats as well. Um, And and that's not the litmus test. It's who wants to do the work and who's willing to make change. And then how can you convince people to get behind you and support you um, and support each other in that process? Yes, I love it. And you did not stop at college with your political leadership, your service to your community, to the state of Colorado. In 2016, you became the first openly Black LGBTQ woman who was elected to public office in the state. And that makes you a trailblazer. And something I talk about all the time is I love women like you. I admire women like you continuing to break the glass ceiling. But it's also 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And we still have so many of these first because we have a lot to do in this country with getting more women of color in elected office. So for you, where were you when you found out that you had won? What was your reaction? Because this is something I've actually never talked to you about. So this is just me being curious, too. You know, I, I should say my journey to winning the seat was not easy. Uh, I ran against a white male who was self-funding. Um, and I am not a self-funder, so I had to raise every single penny. Um, I worked, you know, my butt off to get to win by doing a lot of canvassing, a lot of really getting to know the community and asking questions um, and then figuring out where the solutions lied. Um, And so it was my anticipation that it was going to come down to, you know, 10, 20, 30 votes um, because the races are pretty close here in Colorado. So I just remember the last day of the election cycle, um, you know, we were getting ballots uh, out of people's homes and, you know, running around the neighborhood asking folks to vote. Um, I knew that in the vote centers where the African-American population tends to go to, that it was going to be busy on the last day. Um, And I didn't want any excuse for folks not to vote. Well, out of nowhere, I swear, I swear to God, the sky opened up and we had this freak hailstorm at like the very last minute. And people were sitting in their cars not willing to get out to turn in their ballots. Uh, Yeah, they pulled up the drive-through ballot drop places. They pulled them up because it was, you know, hailstorm and lightning and everything. And so I was like, oh, no, these are definitely my voters and they're not going to be able to cast their votes. And so I was um, got an umbrella and started going around to all of the cars near the vote centers and asking folks for their ballots. And in Colorado, we could each pick up 10 ballots. And so I would pick up my 10 and my staff would pick up their 10 and we would rush them inside um, to make the seven o'clock deadline. So at 7.03, I'm finally walking back to my car and I get a call from my good friend um, who now is a congressman, Joe Nagoose. And I answer my phone and thinking he's going to give me some pep talk, like you're not, you're, you're, you're behind now, but it'll be okay. And last minute voters and everything. And he tells me, you won. And I was like, what do you mean? The votes haven't been counted yet. And he's like, early returns are in. 
You have won by a margin that he can't, you know, they can't overcome you. You've won. You better get to your party. We're all here. So can you imagine? I am soaking like a wet dog, <laughs> like completely wet. Um, I run to my to my party um, and people were there celebrating at like by 730. Um, and that's when I found out that I had won. And it was just so good to see so much, so many people in the community come out to celebrate with me. Um, now, my opponent didn't concede until much later in the night, um, but it was it was a really great experience. But I got to tell you, even if the you know, even though I won by a lot, you can never take any vote for granted. And so I'm so glad that we did that, that we got all the votes counted and at the end actually won by the highest vote count in Colorado history for a contested race. Congratulations. Just well-deserved. And you're still out there kicking butt. And in a bit, we're going to talk about all the amazing things that you're doing in the Colorado State House. But one of the things that I do want to reflect on, and it's something that you and I talk about a lot, is so many of us live in these so-called progressive states or cities, and it's really so hard for women of color to break through. And there's a lot of women out there who just think, well, I don't think I'd be able to do it because this district always votes for that type of person that I have to self-fund, that I have to look a certain kind of way, be a certain kind of way. And I just really want the listeners to get your thoughts on that and how you overcame it. Not going to act like, obviously, we still all have struggles, but what advice would you give to those women who are thinking, okay, can I actually step up and run and serve my community in the state that is technically progressive, you know, likes women of color, but may not actually vote for women of color? Yeah. I mean, look, we've got to work three times as hard to get half as far. And that's real. That's not changed. Um, you know, people, I can look at the same donor list and people who are donors who give uh, max out to other candidates would have only given half to me. And that's just reality. Um, and so that I would say, don't be upset by that. Um, just take it for what it is and know that you're going to have to work harder until the system changes. That will take a cultural shift, which will be years down the line, but you need to be a part of that change in order to be a part of that change. You need to get elected. And so I say, know that that's a reality and then get out there and convince your voters um, about why you should win. Now, I ran in a competitive primary. So the story I just told you was primary night. Um, it wasn't general election night because there's no way um, a Republican is getting elected in my um, district. That's a reality, too. Um, but being a Democrat, it meant that we pretty my, me and my opponent aligned on many issues it was the ticky tacky things that set us apart. But I think the reason why I won was because people started to get to know me on an, in an authentic way, on an authentic level. That's going to be key for winning any local election, state, school board, city council. People need to really understand you and understand that you're willing to fight for them, even if they don't always agree with you. Um, and so I say get out there and do it. The other thing I want to say to your listeners is, be sure to support women of color, um, Black women, early on. Early on, when everyone's saying they don't have a shot, they're not going to win, they don't work hard enough, they're not in the community, where have they been? I mean, realize that that is an excuse to keep electing white men. Um, 
Black people don't tend to hang out at their Democratic spaghetti dinners where there are no other Black people, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that they haven't been active in some other way. And it doesn't mean that they don't have the skills that it takes to be a good elected official. And so support other women of color early and throughout their careers. Um, that's what we need right now. And um, that's what we need. That's what we have to do. Sometimes making a difference means putting money where your mouth is. Small dollar donations can combine to create big results. In the 2018 election cycle, small dollar donors gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns or organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations, big and small, to flourish. Candidates and organizations using ActBlue know that they're using the best. ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and incredible customer service. Want to use your phone? ActBlue's tools are optimized for mobile. Plus, ActBlue is always working to improve its offerings. ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. I want to move on to another question where I hope you will give our listeners some advice is we know that you can't be what you can't see. And I know you and another one of my favorite brown girls, one of my other favorite brown girls, Rep. Renita Shannon from Georgia, you openly share your stories and encourage other LGBTQ individuals to run for office. And I just admire that so much because let's keep it real. There are so many people in this day and age who will say, I made it. I'm good. I figure it out. You can too. But you, both of you are not like that at all. And you're just so open with everything. So for you, why is it important for you to tell your story, but just not your story to share all of the ups and downs that came with it? Yeah, I think it's important because people need to know that we are real human beings. Um, Elected officials, especially women of color, are not like these creatures made out of stone. (laughs) Like we are real people. And we hope that through our stories that other people identify with them in some way, um, feel inspired to either run for office or create change in a different way, or even just come out, even just live their lives in a more um, open way so they can lift some of their burdens off of their shoulders as well. Um, I got to tell you, people will define you if you don't define yourself. And so Mm -hmm. I always get a jump on that and say, here's who I am. Let's let that aside. And now let's talk about what I want to do. And so that's kind of why, you know, I was out in my entire campaign. Uh, Rep. Shannon is so courageous for coming out as well. Um, And that's why, you know, I continue to tell my story and um, connect with people in that way. I also say that as an elected official, It's helpful for my colleagues to know where I'm coming from. It's helpful for them to know what lines they can and cannot cross with me um, and that they can't use any part of my story against me. We can only talk about policy moving forward. And I think that's important. I love it. I love it so much. 
And when we talk about women in elected office, we know that we care about the entire community. And we can see that with the bills that you've introduced. Your first one was to help protect homeless youth. When the Colorado state legislature was going through their Me Too issues, you had a very strong floor speech standing up for your colleagues, but you're really making your mark when it comes to criminal justice reform and in ways that most people don't pay attention to. Because when we think about criminal justice reform, we're just thinking about private prisons. We're thinking about people in jail for marijuana when we're seeing other people who are having business flourishing, selling marijuana. But you're really getting down to the nitty gritty day-to-day issues that impact people when it comes to criminal justice reform. So one of the things that I want to dive into first, and when I'm out speaking and I talk about women doing great things, I tell a lot of people about your work with getting tampons in prisons. Because in prisons across the country, many women prisoners are not allowed to use tampons. You did a TED Talk on this issue. So tell us a little bit more about your work that you've done here. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll start by saying another part of my story is that my sister has been in and out of the criminal justice system uh, since uh, since I've known her. So for over 20 years, um, uh, she is a bit older than me, grew up in a different household, uh, but is still my blood sister, you know, and she went through a lot. Um, She went through a lot. I know that she, when I was growing up, we knew that she had uh, issues with addiction and drugs. Um, She lived in Oakland, California. Um, I lived kind of all around when my mom joined the military. And so she was with her dad in that household. Um, And so we lived very different lives. Um, But what I learned pretty quickly is that, you know, my sister was involved in the criminal justice system. We would get calls to put money on her books. Um, and if we did, if, you know, if family was feeling, you know, supportive or wasn't kind of burned out on it all, which we do, or if we had the money, we would put it on there. If we didn't, we knew that meant that she had to choose between buying things like tampons or calling her kids. And for me, that's not a choice that women who are incarcerated should ever have to make. So I started visiting women's prisons a lot more um, since becoming elected and realized that my sister's story was no different than any of those other women who were incarcerated. Um, Women who had money um, would buy tampons and women who didn't um, couldn't, right? And they would have to beg, barter, and steal, and sometimes even sell themselves uh, for a box of tampons. It is humiliating and degrading. On top of that, women would have to prove a medical need to a guard um, to get the exception and get the tampons. So that's not only degrading to the woman, it's degrading to the guard. Can you imagine having to show your, that you prove that you bled through your, your pad? Um, that's a, that's a, an absurd policy that just dehumanizes people. And so uh, when I found out that this was happening in Colorado, that it was so rampant, I first um, looked to the Department of Corrections, which we have dr- direct jurisdiction over, um, and said, we're going to change this, and did a ballot measure um, to provide tampon, tampons for women in the state. We found out that it was only a $40,000 expense in a $1 billion budget. And so there really was no excuse why they couldn't pay that themselves. So when they came back, the Department of Corrections came back and said, we can't afford this. I said, all right, well, we'll take it from your exec- executive director's salary. 
And we went on the floor and we moved the line item from the executive director's budget into tampons. Well, magically, the department found the money. (laughs) And um, started providing tampons later that month. And so that's how we started this journey. But then more recently, working with activist Elizabeth Epps here in Colorado, um, I found out that our local jails were not providing access to tampons. Some were good, some were bad, but it wasn't consistent across the state. And so we uh, we introduced a bill to require all jails, um, uh, whether you're Department of Corrections, whether you're a small local jail um, or a youth facility, to provide tampons um, and other products to women who are incarcerated. Um, You know, we had some objections, but mostly people started to come on board. And by the time we passed the last vote on that bill, it was a unanimous vote. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, men and women came up and said, all right, we've got to get this done. We've got to get this passed. Um, And we were able to pass that through um, through the Colorado State Legislature. It's awaiting signature by the governor. Um, No indication that he won't sign it. And so we look forward to once that bill is signed to ensure that every single woman who is incarcerated, who is behind bars, has access to basic human needs like tampons. Just listening to this, it it makes me want to cry. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you really said it is dehumanizing. And just because these women are in prison, that doesn't make them any less human. And another issue that you're working on is bail reform. So we'd love to have you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there. So tens of thousands of Coloradans are sitting in jail awaiting trial. Um, so we have to like realize when we're talking about things like bail reform, this is pre-trial. This is before a conviction. And even though our U.S. Constitution says you're innocent before proving guilty, if you are poor, it means you're still behind bars. And so I am working to with others to change the bail system here in Colorado. Eventually, I would like to abolish cash bail altogether and move into a system more like what we see in Europe, where either you're a flight risk or you're a safety risk to yourself or someone else. That's the only reason why you should be in jail. It shouldn't before your trial. It shouldn't be just because you can't afford to pay. So we have already passed one bill to the legislature that says that if you are awaiting trial on low-level offenses, offenses that, quite frankly, don't even amount to jail time if you are convicted, that they can't hold you just because you can't pay your $100 or $200 bond. They have to let you out. Um, These are for offenses like sleeping on a park bench, your grass growing too high. Um, Those are things that are ticketable, municipal offenses that people in Colorado are sitting in jail for to the thousands of people right at this moment. And so we said that that was not going to be okay, that if this was not a jailable offense to begin with, that you cannot hold people before their trial on these offenses. And so that bill has passed through the legislature and is also awaiting signature by the governor. Um, And I was surprised to see that we had bipartisan support on that measure as well. The tougher measure is the next one I'm working on to redefine risk. Um, And so when I say that the only reason why you should be in jail is if you are a flight risk or if you are harm to yourself or others, that's really important. That's not what our society and that's not I should say that's not what's happening in practice in our in our um, courtrooms across Colorado. Right now, it's again based on your ability to pay. Risk is one factor, but risk is the definition of risk is 
so broad that it could mean anything. Um, flight risk means you maybe won't appear um, and uh, appear to court. And we found that the, just the existence of a cash bail system does not help with any of those factors. And so what we're trying to do in Colorado is create a new framework for, the, for our cash bail system so that we can alleviate the reliance on cash bail, move more into um, a system that does assess based on, on harm to society or flight risk, like you're going to leave the state, um, and then helps people when it comes to getting to their court dates um, through things like court reminders and uh, courts that are open six days a week as opposed to just five. Just, again, killing it with the way that you're changing things. And I really hope, too, for our listeners, this is a great civics lesson on how so many things work at the local level and that I really do hope that they take some of the things that they're hearing that you're saying and go back to their elected officials and say, okay, they're doing this in Colorado to make the things better. What are you doing for us here? And the last issue I want to talk about is something that I worked on a lot when I was at the Department of Labor and the Obama administration is with banning the box. And for our listeners who don't know what we mean when we say ban the box, if you have been formally incarcerated and you go apply for a job, there is a box that you have to check saying that you've been in prison before. And this is used by a lot of employers to deny people employment, which means the formerly incarcerated, they come out, they're trying to get their lives back on track, get a job, support themselves, their families, and they can't because they're being discriminated against. And the Trump administration announced a few weeks ago that they're going to start work on a second step act, and that would be aimed at slashing the unemployment rate of the formerly incarcerated. And when I heard this, the first thing that came to mind is, well, if this doesn't address banning the box, then there's really no way that this act would even succeed. So would love your thoughts on that and also the work that you're doing to ban the box. Yeah. I mean, we know that the recidivism rate is based on employment and housing. Recidivism means your likelihood to commit another crime and go back to jail. So if someone doesn't actually have access to um, employment, they are more likely to commit a crime and go back to jail. So ban the box really is a measure to to ensure that um, our communities are safe, right? (laughs) To decrease crime. It is a good criminal justice reform measure um, because it does keep our communities safer. How does it do that? Well, on that job application, there's a box that says, check here if you have a criminal history. First of all, rarely ever is it defined what criminal history means. And in Colorado, 1.3 million people are in the Colorado criminal ju- or Colorado crime history database. So that could be all of us, right? I mean, it's like, were you in for a ticket? Um, you know, what, what, is it, what does that mean? We don't know. And while people want to be honest about, about their history on their applications, um, if it automatically screens you out, and that means you can't actually have the follow-up conversation about what your criminal history was, um, then you're less likely to get that job. So what we're doing in Colorado is saying you cannot have a criminal history checkbox on your applications, on the initial job applications, period. Um, that, that is no longer going to be allowed here. The reason for that is because we do want people to be able to seek employment. We want people to be able to say, here's what I did in my past, 
And here's why I'm ready to get to work. And that conversation won't happen if you're automatically screened out by an algorithm. And so we are looking to ban the box across Colorado, not only for employment, but also for higher education. And so we have passed both of these measures to ban the box in those two areas to get people access to jobs and education. Just amazing because, again, most people don't talk about the educational aspect of banning the box, too. So I hope our listeners get just why I love you so much and I look to you as a leader on these issues. And everyone, definitely keep up to date with what Representative Herod is doing on social media. She always has great information coming out. And another organization I'm a part of, the 2020 Bipartisan Justice Coalition, we are a group of individuals from across the aisle who care about changing criminal justice the criminal justice system, because it is not a partisan issue. It is something that everyone should absolutely care about. And just so excited about all the work that you are doing to just really change people's lives is just wonderful and truly amazing. And we're going to move into our final question for you, Representative. And that is, what advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? I would say be authentically you. (laughs) And that is like the number one thing, the number one advice I have is don't try to be anyone else. I used to look at other elected officials and say, I have to be like them in order to be successful. But the real case is, is that I've got to be myself and be bold and authentic in order to make real change. So I am so proud to stand on the shoulder of so many giants. Um, My mentor is former state representative Roseberry Marshall, And I thought I wanted to be just like her. And she tells me, no, I struggled, I sacrificed, I fought so that you could be you. And Mm -hmm. that meant so much to me. It told me that, you know, it's now my duty to be even more bold, to go even as far as I can, to push the envelope in every area in order to continue to make change. So for, you know, brown girls who are looking to be just like me, I say, look, I'm here so that you can be you. And so push harder, go further, and do more than I could even anticipate. I love it. Love it so much. Thank you, Representative, for your time. We really appreciate it. And just thank you for being out there representing us and just killing it and showing what us brown girls can do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Representative Harrod. You can follow her on Twitter at Leslie Harrod, and you can keep up to date with her work on the BGG website, where she is one of our regular contributors. Stay tuned for next episode, which is the season finale. We will be speaking with political communications specialist, Heather Barmore.